We're going to turn in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 17. If you remember last week, I started reading at verse 5. Well, this week I want to start reading at verse 1. So chapter 17, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. And I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled the fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. Now you know why I didn't read the first five verses last week. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good comes but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so he who gets riches but not by right, it will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of your sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountains of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. What's that word I could have used this morning? Look, that last bit by there. Now if you remember last week, he talked uh, from this chapter, from verse 5, and we talked, looked at the contrast that exists between the man who trusts in man and uh, makes the flesh his strength and the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. We looked at those two type of people and uh, we looked at the consequences of each life choice and found that one was likened to a dried out naked shrub dying in the desert while the other was like a tree planted by the waters which never failed to bring forth uh, fruit and whose leaves we're always green. Now, I don't know where you'd rather be. Um, I think I'd rather be by the river uh, of life and uh, be in water daily 
uh, by the Spirit of God. That would be great. You know, that's, uh, that's my experience because my trust is in the Lord. Yeah. And uh, my hope is in the Lord as well. And um, I ceased trusting in man and I ceased uh, making flesh my strength many, many years ago. It's a futile thing to do and we can see it. The, the results of it here uh, in this passage, but we can see the results of it in the lives of men and women who are outside the fold and family of Jesus Christ, that they've got nothing to offer at all. There is nothing there, and there's no fruit there, no fruit of holiness or righteousness, and uh, there is this nakedness about people. So it doesn't take a genius uh, to know which is the better place to be. Now we dealt with all that last week, and um, if we trace our steps back to verse 1, we can see what it is that Jeremiah is addressing by giving us that contrast between the two men. You see, because we are being faced now in this chapter with a very serious situation that is brewing in the nation of Judah. We know that uh, Jeremiah was the prophet uh, who prophesied the downfall of Judah. You know, and uh, you know that uh, that God was going to well, as we as we read there, God was going to remove them from the land. You know, and we know that later on there will be false prophets who will say that, John, that Jeremiah is lying and he's not speaking on behalf of God. So uh, we can see the type of society that this. Um, prophecy has been uh, brought into there's something brewing in Judah that is dire that is heinous, that is evil you know and not only in Judah but as we read there this um, problem this serious situation is always brewing also brewing in each family of Judah you see that it's possible in it for a nation uh, to go uh, away from God, but families within it to stay faithful to God. Mm. You know, I suppose that if we was to go uh, to to Germany in the third, the late thirties, you know, that is, there was this: the nation was going towards what it went to, but there were families within it yeah. that were against that and uh, and stood up against that. But here we can see that not only is the nation. Uh, sort of in a serious situation but each family within it <coughs> is also uh, uh, brewing for the same thing but and it goes on a bit further which we will deal with this morning it's also the individual heart that is the problem with the situation that we find ourselves in. You know and here we are we're in a land that is full of sin that have turned its back upon God but we, we know that families within that nation are, have turned their back against God. And we know that individuals within those families have turned their back against God. And therefore the situation becomes very, very dire, very serious. You know, and God has got to address such a serious situation. You know, we can go back to uh, Genesis chapter 6 and we can see exactly the same thing. You know, when God looked at the world, he saw that there was no one who did right. Everyone did evil in the sight of God. 
You know, and then he narrowed it down and he looked at the families and the families were the same and the individuals. But there was one, one person who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That was Noah, of course. You know, and today we have the same situation. That people have turned their back and are turning their backs on God all the time. So it is a dire situation. It's a, it's a serious situation. So first of all, we're going to look at Judah. We're going to look at the nation uh, of Judah. The bigger picture, if you like. Uh, because uh, to, to have any benefit of... of um, to have any benefit of studying these old prophets, mm-hmm. we have to relate them to our time. It's great to... You know, it would be great to have a history lesson of what took place back there. And, you know, we'd all go home and think, oh... You know, yes, we've learned a lot this morning, but of course we've got to apply it to our own time, our own situation, even our own hearts. Because that's what we're looking at. We're looking at something about us. You know, and however you look at it, the scene is a very grave one that we belong to. And it's a, a situation in the world today that ought to make us sit up and take notice. Look at what uh, God says, or Jeremiah says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and the point of a diamond. You know, it is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of your altars. Mm. Now, this seems very, very serious to me. It seems that so severe is this sin that it's not just recorded with pen and ink. Now that would be bad enough if it was recorded with pen and ink. You know, but um, we can erase ink. You know, we can sort of push it to one side uh, if it was uh, just writing on a page. Or we could rip the page out and start again. You know, I, you know, I suppose we've, we've all done that. Me and Pauline... Um, we weigh every Friday and we put it down on a bit of paper what our weight is. And sometimes it's quite tempting to rip one of the pages out so we can pretend. You know, and uh, so it's easy to get rid of because, of course, it's, it's they're on a ring binder type of thing. We just rip it up. No one will know it ever existed. Right? And wouldn't, wouldn't that be great if sin was like that? Mm-hmm. You know, we could just rip it. You know, if we had a sin, we could just rip it out and pretend it never happened. You know, and that's if it was recorded with pen and ink, then yes, we could do that. And we could deceive ourselves for thinking that we are okay after all. Because after all, there's no re- record of what we've done. But have you noticed, you, that it's not with pen and ink, but with it's, it's with a diamond engraving tool. A diamond. You know, here we have the hardest thing probably known to man is the diamond. You know, and uh, in, um, a lot of um, machinery in, in engineering, you have a diamond tip if you want something to be really, really smooth and cut really deep. And here we have a diamond engraving tool that will leave the accusation deeply and indelibly scarred upon the medium on which it is recorded. And therefore sin, 
isn't something that can be just brushed aside. It can't be ripped up and put in a bin. can't be ripped, up, ripped out and put in a bin. It can't be sort of crushed and sort of put out of the way. This is something that is deep. This is something that is uh, lasting. You know, and um, this isn't something that's thought of as irrelevant. This is serious misconduct that we are dealing with on behalf of these people. And God is quite serious as he begins to deal with it. Because you see, you must check out the two surfaces upon which he's writing. And they said, if it was a pen and ink and paper, we could scrumple it up, put it in the fire, and that's the end of it. You know, and going back a couple of years, many Christians used to do that. They used to write their sins on a bit of paper and throw them in the fire. You know, it's a, it's a symbolic act, I suppose. I don't know what uh, it does in the grand scheme of things. Uh, because it's not fire that uh, cleanses us from sin. It's the blood of Christ that's, that cleanses us from sin. So, you know, some people sort of like to do that, but I don't see no point in it myself. You know, but um, notice the surface upon which this is written. It's written upon the tablet of the heart of the nation. Now that's something you can't get rid of very easily. When something's written on the tablet of your heart. Yes, it is possible for the heart to be marked with accusation or with guilt or with designation. You know, notice with uh, Proverbs 3. This is what uh, Proverbs 3 says. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and the sight of man. You know, it seems to me that this medium of the tablet of the heart seems to be the place of testimony. And yes, even the place that God looks upon. Not only is it a part of us, and perhaps read of men, but it's also read of God. When you write something on your heart, God sees it. God understands it. He takes notice of it. You know, and when mercy and truth are not forsaken, those things are written on the tablet of your heart, then you will find favor. And high esteem in the sight of God and of men. Because it's the place of testimony that is read of God and it is read of man. Isn't it great to find God's favor? How do we find God's favor? Well, keep mercy and truth close to your heart. Live by mercy and truth. Live by His grace. Live by His truth. You see, it's almost like the, the litmus test. Of faithfulness. The heart. The heart. But you, it's a different story. It's a different story. Because it's not mercy and truth that are being engraved on the heart. You, It's the grievous sins of Judah that are engraved or etched upon this medium. And therefore it's a different story. You know, and I suppose that uh, one word that I could use this morning that sprung to my mind when I read that was conscience. Conscience. You know, that nagging feeling that you've got 
when you've done something you know you shouldn't have. It's almost etched on your conscience. You wonder what an awful situation to be in. The burden of guilt weighs heavy upon the unrepentant heart. You know, and of course, isn't it great that God has given us provision for uh, to relieve ourselves of such guilt, of such a conscience that plays us up. If we confess our sins, says John in the first chapter of his first epistle, if we for confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, there's no need to suffer with a conscience. There's no need to be under the burden of guilt. There's no need to be condemned as Christians. Because all we have to do is keep a short record with God. And once we've confessed our sins, God remembers them no more. And He cleanses our conscience from all unrighteousness and all sin. So we didn't, don't need to suffer any time at all under the burden of guilt. But note, secondly... This indictment that we're looking at not only appears on the tablet of our hearts that is read of God and read of man, but it also appears on the horns of the altar. Now we know, don't we, that uh, when Moses built the tabernacle, uh, there were two altars, or, uh, yeah, there were two altars. There was the, uh, the, the altar of sacrifice at the beginning when you walked in, that's where all the animals were, were sacrificed to the Lord. And on each corner of this square fire pit, there was a horn. Now this is probably uh, there to, to tie your, your sacrifice up. That's what, that's what it uh, would be there for. You take your goat in, instead of holding on to him, you tie him up. Just like they do in the, in the cowboys, tie him up to the horn. That's what they were there. Four. Now then, uh, well, that's what it says in Psalm 118. Anyway, not guessing. You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not telling you something any that no one else knows. God is the Lord, and He has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You know, and it is also the place that mercy was given, and each horn was continually smeared with blood. You know, and I'm um, so conscious of David uh, when I read, uh, read this. Because the man David, or the king David, had sinned grievously against Bathsheba, and against Uriah, and against many more in his court. But when he comes to Psalm 51, this is what he says. He says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me, which, of course, we would say is the first bit. They're on the tablet of my heart. And then he goes on to say, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So not only is it etched on his heart, but it is also etched on the horns of the altar. Because this is God that we are talking about. This is God. We've sinned against man. I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've sinned against Uriah. But Lord, it's against you really that I have sinned. All our sin is against God. You know, and um, how easily 
The scarring occurs because of sin. And how easily our relationship with God is defigured or disfigured because of sin. Now I want you to notice that it's etched. It's etched with a diamond tip. So these are deep gouges. Deep gouges in the heart. Deep gouges on the horns. You want you ask yourself the question, can the blood of bulls and goats cover such deep abrasions? You know, you put a, 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 a liquid onto a surface that's marred, and the liquid will take the form or the shape of the, of the surface. And if it's marred, you'll see the scars. You see the scratches. You see the etchings. Your blood cannot cover it up. It cannot cover it up. Now that's the first thing that we notice when we look at this passage of scripture. That's the nation, says says uh, Jeremiah. That's where you stand. You stand with horns that have been uh, scraped, and you stand with hearts that have been scraped. And there is nothing on planet Earth. That can hide those scars. But then we, national sin is one thing, but then there is family sin. And we come to verse 2. And verse 2 says, While their children remember their altars and the wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Now we know what this is all about. This is all about the groves that the Israelites used to cultivate. In order to worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths. You know these sort of sexual symbols. uh, That were part of the pagan religions. That these Israelites had gone into. But you know it's okay. Sometimes if you want to go that way yourself. That's your choice. You know we've all got choices. And if you want to go that way yourself. Then you go that way yourself. But you will always be seen going that way. You will be seen by your children. So not only are you taking yourself away from God, but you are taking your teacher, your children away from God. You want to ask the question, what are we teaching our young What are they seeing in us? What sort of example are we leaving them to follow? You know, and that is the question that surfaces when we read verse 2. And let's not confine it to our children, of course. Because we are epistles read of all men. You know, and if people out there are watching us every day, every day, people have noticed that you've come out of your homes this morning and got in your cars and made your way somewhere. Now if they know you, they know where you've gone. So they are looking at you, examining you. They set their clocks by you. Now then, that puts a massive responsibility on us. Because we, they're off to church. Number six are off to church. Right, that's what they say about a place. Number six, are off to church. But what are we portraying when we are not in church? That's what, I, you know, that we could ask. Are we portraying the love of Christ as we walk this Christian path? Are they seeing Jesus in us? 
Are they hearing the message of the gospel? Is the cross a part of our conversations? Because it seems that we become culpable when we renege on our responsibility. Not only have the adults gone into these groves to worship uh, a god or uh, a series of gods, but the children are looking. And the children are being defiled. The children are being led astray. And therefore it's very, very important that it's as grown-ups in the faith I'm talking about, not talking about grown-ups uh, in, in, you know, in normal things, grown-ups in the faith. Your God is addressing in these. We are influencing people. They watched as they burnt incense to other gods. They'd watched their parents drifting away from the living God, and therefore they follow their example. You know what I'm afraid to say that that has happened in the Rhonda Valley over the last 50, 60 years. Mm. You know that, you know, let's go back to the 1904 revival and, and everyone was following the Lord and they were preaching the gospel and they were living the life. And then slowly but surely, slowly but surely, as generation followed generation, so the, 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 the powerful Christian ethic and the Christian worship began to be diluted and children saw families that weren't so committed weren't so enamored by God didn't worship God so seriously didn't take the word so seriously you know I've told you the story about the man uh, who lived next to a church in Blind Ronda and when I knocked his door to give him a tract on one occasion he says I don't bother with all that he said he said I used to go next door and they taught me that the Bible couldn't be trusted. Mm-hmm. He said, so if the Bible can't be trusted, and that's why they go, I stop going. You know, and that's what happened. You know, liberalism, or uh, the liberals came in, and they questioned the Bible, and they criticized the Bible, and they mocked the Bible, and all the sort of the brainy Christians went on board and thought, this is the way, we don't believe in the flood, we don't believe in, the, uh, in creation, we don't believe in Jonah and the whale, we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, we don't believe that we sinners, we don't believe this, and we don't believe that, and then we wonder why our society is godless. Yeah. But all we've done is given an example to those who come behind us. And that's how important it is for us. You know, I thank God, and I thank God every day. You know, and this is no um, feather in my cap, but my two boys are following the Lord. And I love that. I love that, that they are both following the Lord. You know, and um, you know, that's how um, we want our families to, to grow up behind us. And become a part of what we are doing. Because we've got to be very careful. What image you are giving to those who are watching. The example to others. So the nation had sinned. The families had sinned and influenced the children. You know, but there's also the matter of personal sin. And this is verse 3. It tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it uh, says Jeremiah you know we're back with the heart again because I think that this is where the real battle begins and ends really you know how many times have we voted with our hearts knowing that our heads had a better grip on the situation 
I heard a man a couple of weeks ago say, um, tell him, apologizing to somebody, saying to him, I'm sorry, he said, but I voted with my heart. And now I'm sorry because I know I should have gone with my head. The heart is so desperately wicked, it can deceive us. It can really, really deceive us. You know, and how easily it is to be moved to do something. Act because we feel we should. Say something because our heart says, be kind, when it would have been so much kinder had our heads ruled our hearts. You know, in every walk of life, the heart cannot be trusted. It's deceitful. It's Jacob-like, says Jeremiah. Deceitful, the word is there, is the same word as the word Jacob. Jacob was a twister. Jacob was a supplanter. He was the crooked one. You, You just can't trust a crooked one. Ah, but he's got such a lovely face. Remember the woman in our, my auntie in, in the bush, uh, Eunice Pine, you know, do you know Eunice Pine? She's, she's talking about the Pope many, many years ago. She said, hasn't he got such a lovely face? Yes, he has got a lovely face. He didn't, they were not the son now, the one in Baybach. He got a lovely face. He got a lovely face. Yeah, he's got a lovely face. But if your heart goes out to his face, then you'll be deceived. You'll be deceived because he's not going you away. He's not taking you to Christ. He's taking you in a totally different uh, direction altogether. You know, and um, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. Because the heart, Jesus warns us about the heart. How desperately wicked it is. You know, and uh, the Bible says here, it's a disaster area. That's what the word desperately wicked means. It's a disaster area. And disaster will follow it everywhere we go. You know, and I was thinking about this um, over the weekend. You know, perhaps it's a little bit um, contentious. But can you remember a couple of years ago when that soldier had that little boy? He pulled him out of the water. I don't know if you can remember, there was an image that was on the television. He'd be come across from one of the countries in Africa and he'd, they, their boat had overturned. And uh, this little boy of about three was drowned. And um, a soldier was carrying it up from the beach on his hand. You know, and it turned the world. It turned the world. It was so powerful. So powerful. That leaders of nations dropped their guard. Germany dropped its guard and allowed a million refugees into its country. See, yes, the, the scene was awful. The scene tugged at your heart. But you see, if you make a decision when your heart is being tugged, then you will rue it in the cold night of day. You know, and it wasn't many months after that that Germany were found that they were having so many problems with terrorism in their country. You see, yes, it's, it looks so awful and you think to yourself, we've got to do something about this. Our hearts were tugged. The strings of our hearts were pulled. But you still, even though that happens, you've still got to be strong and do the right thing. You know, and the heart will tell you what, what, how you feel. But you've got to do the right thing. You know, and it's important that we are not swayed off with our hearts, moved to do something, feel 
this and feel that. You and I think the church has become a church that has put objective truth on the table over there and it now acts under feelings. How does it feel? Is it good? Is it nice? Is it powerful? No, is it true? That's the secret. Is it true? Because your heart will always deceive you. And you've got to make sure that you keep a, a tight rein on your heart. Otherwise, disaster will follow it. So look in again very quickly. The nation of Israel, the family in Israel, or the individual in the family. Your sin, says Jeremiah, has made an indelible deep-sided gouge in your heart and on the horns of your, of your altar. A gouge so deep that all the blood of bulls and of goats could never remove or cover it. So what is our response? What is our hope? What is our only hope? Well, let's go down to verse 14 because there we can see our only hope. And this is it. Heal me, O Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. You and this is the only hope that is open to us. All other ground is sinking sand. No matter what, how good you are, how um, holy you think you are, how righteous you think you are, how charitable you think you are, nothing hides those marks. Nothing at all. Not the blood of bulls and goats or any other human thing. Only the blood of of Christ. You see the scratches on our heart and on the horns of the altar are too deep for us to deal with ourselves. You when trying to rid ourselves of the guilt and power of sin, we enter more deeply into it. It's too strong for us. The flesh is too weak. But there is hope. Because there is one. There is one who has triumphed over sin. Over death, over hell, and the grave. Jesus Christ the righteous. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. Hebrews 10 says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But, but this man, Jesus Christ the righteous. After he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever. Sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those horns are as good as new. And that heart is as good as new. Why? Because it has been touched by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it will be as good as new in a billion years' time. Stuart Townend says, I will trust. Now I sang last week, I'm not going to sing this week. I will trust in the cross of my Redeemer. And I will sing of the blood that never fails, of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, 
of death defeated and life without end why should our consciences be a problem why should our peace with God be stunted when we have an advocate before the father and his blood has been shed once and for all and every sin has been dealt with once and for all and his blood avails for me for the whole of eternity for his name's sake.